Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning. We're going to take a quick break from Acts, and we're going to walk through a little bit of the fourth chapter of Matthew today. So um, open your Bibles to Matthew 4, and we'll read together beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen? I think this is a passage that often gets taught in in the wrong way. We want to look at this passage, and we want to find strategies for how to like withstand temptation. I don't think that's what this passage is about. I think that's the product of the way we tend to look at the Bible as modern-day American believers. We look at the Bible looking for special lessons about us. When we read the Word of God, we should expect to find lessons about God in it. When we read the Bible, we should be focusing in on what it teaches us about God. Our culture is pervaded by this self-centered view of reading Scripture, of reading the Bible, when instead we should be reading the Bible to look and see our great God and His acts displayed. You've heard that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. Who's heard that? That is incorrect. That is not a good way of looking at the Bible. The Bible is a set of books that proclaim the glory of God, his mission to the world, all the things that he achieved, most importantly at the cross with Jesus. We regularly read the Bible looking for like 10 lessons about this or three lessons about that or how to have a great marriage or how to be great parents. And we can learn some of those things from the Bible, but we have to prioritize what it tells us about God, what it tells us about Jesus first. There's a famous passage that we misuse all the time, Philippians 4.13. I know when I said that, it like, it like shot through half of your heads, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Bible verse that's written in um, school gyms nationwide, right? You guys can picture it, right? Billy is, is at the high school championship, you know? He's got, he's got the basketball. That's right, Mike, sports. He's got the basketball. Just, okay. It's the final seconds, is it like this? Okay, final seconds of the game. Final seconds of the game. 
He needs to make this shot to win. He's lined up the shot. He closes his eyes. Time stops, and he's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then he opens his eyes. He looks over the bleachers, and there's the Apostle Paul like, you got this, Billy. <laughs> oh, man, we shouldn't read the Bible this way. We've got to stop doing our vocal exercises when we read the Bible. Me, 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 me. Didn't work as well this time. I'm going to do it again, though. We have to read the Bible looking for God first, looking for Jesus first, looking what it tells us about him before we look at the Bible for what it means for us. We'll get there, but first we walk through what the Bible tells us about God. That is essential. So if you're looking today for specific strategies on how to defend against temptation, stop waiting. I'm not going to give them to you. Instead, we're going to look at what it teaches us about Jesus when we come to the wilderness scene, when we come to this moment where Jesus goes out in the wilderness to be confronted by the devil, we come to a battle scene. But it is not an inner battle. It is not Jesus barely escaping the wilderness by the skin of his teeth, running away from the devil, barely withstanding sin. It's an outward battle where our Lord faces the forces of darkness and walks out victorious. That's what we see at the wilderness. We need to see that before we talk about how we can defend against temptation. Jesus overcoming darkness. Jesus overcoming Satan. And when we read this passage, I think we need to like focus on two things. One is we should behold the mission of the Son. Behold the mission of the Son. And secondly, we should follow the example of the Son. Second and secondarily. Read again with me, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. A few background or sort of secondary things before we jump into the text. The idea of wilderness. When we talk about wilderness today, we primarily talk about it as a place of retreat. Men's retreats or youth retreats or sort of getaways where we go out and we take in the majesty of God's creation and we unplug and we turn off our phones and we don't do electronic things and we spend time introspectively praying and spending time maybe with our family members or other friends. It's a getaway. It's a retreat. It's a vacation. It's a nice place where we experience relaxation and rest and restoration. But wilderness for the first century, like believers, for Jews and Christians in the first century, would not have been understood this way. The wilderness was a desolate place. It was a dangerous place. At a physical like, level, people went to the wilderness if they had to get away from other people, not to be restored, but like, to be not found out. If you were a bandit, you would go out into the wilderness. If you were an outlaw, you'd go out into the wilderness. If you were a rebel, you would go out and make your camps in the wilderness because you didn't want other people to cause problems for you. You had to go out there to run away from them. Also, beyond that, the wilderness is seen as a place where demonic forces reside, where the devil resides. It's a dark place. It's a scary place. It's not a place you go in order to be restored. Jesus goes to the wilderness not to have this retreat, but intentionally, deliberately to confront the powers of Satan. That's why he goes to the wilderness. Secondly, the issue of Satan. Whenever I bring up Satan in any room, whether it's at the university or here or wherever, like the room is divided. Half the room kind of shivers and half the room sort of rolls their eyes. Satan's a difficult subject. He sort of divides the room. And we have two problematic ways of thinking about Satan. One is we don't really believe in him at all. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Satan is real. He's an actual being or person. He's intent on evil. He's intent on destruction. He's against life and all the things that are good. We see him in the garden. We see him at the end. We see him with Judas. We see him with Jesus here. So he's a real guy. But we struggle with that. You guys remember the Apostle Paul? Paul says that he wanted to go to Thessalonica, but Satan stopped him. And we read that, we're like, so you're like, going there and Satan. If you're ever late to church, I'm like, why were you late? Satan stopped me. We must believe that Satan is real. It matters. The Bible teaches that Satan is real. But on the other hand, we can't be terrified of him. It's not an equal match between God and Satan. It's not like this arm wrestling match for all of creation. Satan is a created being. He's someone who rebelled against God, and although the Bible doesn't tell us nearly as much about him as it does about Jesus, he still matters. He's real, but we shouldn't be terrified of him. And when we see Jesus go to the wilderness, we see Jesus defeat Satan, a real being who is not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. You guys still with me? Okay, thank you. Lastly, the word for tempted. When we read this word, it's translated in most of our Bibles, tempted. When we look at the heading at the top of the paragraph, most often it says something like the temptation of Jesus, or Jesus tempted by the devil, or Jesus tempted in the wilderness. The Greek word that's used here is this word perazzo, and in one sense it implies the idea of tempting, but it also holds the idea of testing or a trial. When we think of tempted, When we think of being tempted, we think of the idea of being enticed to do something that is wrong. Tempting, being tempted is what happens to me when it's late at night and I'm hungry and I'm stressed out and I roll past a wiener schnitzel. That's tempting. That's what temptation is. Fight it, right? Testing's a different idea. It's related in some ways, but it's a little bit different. Um, When I go to my students and I give them an exam, right, I'm not tempting them to get the answer wrong right? I'm testing them to see specifically if they are living out their calling as students. If they are who they're supposed to be. If they are completing the mission to which they are called of studenthood. It's testing. It's the idea of trial. So as Jesus goes out into the wilderness, as he goes out to confront Satan, He is not being tempted in the way that we're tempted, in the way that we think about temptation. He is primarily being tested It's a matter of who Jesus is. It's not Jesus barely making it out of the wilderness, trying not to sin. It's a question of Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. And when we expand our discussion to the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, when we think about the things that led up to this time in the wilderness and the things that are going to happen after this time in the wilderness, the idea of testing takes on greater meaning. Who has opened up Matthew and begun to read from verse 1? Anybody here ever done that? And you start, and it's like, this guy was the father of this guy, and you're like, oh, let me just get past this to the story, right? The genealogy, it's a description of who Jesus is and who he's a descendant from. It's telling the story of God's people up to the point of Jesus. And when we read the Gospel of Matthew, one of the things that we're reading is Jesus living out the role, the story, the life of ancient Israel, but doing it righteously. We see what we call recapitulation. We see the story of Israel, we see Jesus arrive, and then relive out the story of Israel. And Matthew is on a regular basis comparing Jesus to Israel. 
He's on a regular basis showing a comparison or a contrast between Jesus' life and Israel's life. He's taking certain points in their stories and drawing connections between them. You know the story of Jesus begins with his birth, and we only see that in two of the Gospels, Luke and in Matthew. And in Matthew, Jesus is born, and there's another king who's alive at the time of Jesus' birth. What's the name of that king? Herod. Yes, Herod. I mentioned the Apostle Paul, who's heard of him. Oh, yeah, Herod. Everyone's heard of Herod. Herod. Herod is an evil king bent on the destruction of Jesus. He's afraid of this king who's in a manger. So one of the things that he conspires to do is to actually commit genocide amongst the young boys in the region that Jesus lives. So Joseph, Jesus' father, is warned in a dream by an angel to flee to Egypt. So they go to Egypt, and then we read this from the book of Matthew. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew here is quoting the prophet Hosea. And when Hosea was originally saying this, he was talking about Israel, the son whom God called out of Egypt. And Matthew's saying Hosea actually wasn't just talking about Israel. He was also talking about Jesus, whom he would call out of Egypt. And then we see at various places through the book of Matthew, this connection drawn between Jesus' life and the life of Israel, God's people. Jesus comes back from Egypt and he disappears for a little while. He reappears when he's around 30 years old. And there's this other character there who's proclaiming the way of Jesus. His name is John the Baptist. We've certainly all heard of him. John the Baptist, he's out in the wilderness, out at the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. He's getting in fights with Pharisees and Sadducees. Thousands of people are likely coming out to be baptized by John, way far away from the city of Jerusalem. And he's telling them, I baptized you with water, but one is coming who's going to baptize you in spirit and in fire. And this guy, this guy that's coming, I'm not even worthy to hold his sandals. He's bigger than me. He's more important than me. He's more significant than me. He matters far more. All I'm doing is preparing the way for this guy. And then Jesus' figure cuts the horizon line of the narrative. He walks in and he approaches John and he says to John that John must baptize him. And John's like, what? That's ridiculous. I was just telling all these people that I'm not even worthy to hold your sandals. It should be you baptizing me. And then Jesus' response, it's telling. He says, let it be so, so that we might fulfill all righteousness. Jesus gets baptized by John. Not what we would expect. We would expect John to baptize Jesus. Certainly John expected that. Here's what's important to see here. When we are baptized as believers, it's a public declaration that we are united with Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, it's a public declaration that he is united with us. So he gets baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And then he comes up out of the water. And for the first time in hundreds of years, God speaks. The heavens split open. And we read this in 3.17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When God says this, he's alluding, he's referring to two different places in the Old Testament. The first is an expected place. The second is a less expected place. The first place he's referring to, he's alluding to, is Psalm 2. Let me read that for you now, just the first few verses. It begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laugh, the Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what the people were expecting. Jesus the Messiah, he shows up. And we got to remember, the Israelites, the Jews, have been under the thumb of other nations for hundreds of years. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, and now the Romans, all of these other empires who were oppressing God's people. These other empires, these other kingdoms were idol worshipers, and the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to show up and do something about this injustice. Do something. So Jesus shows up. John's been saying, this guy's going to come. He's a big deal. He's going to baptize in spirit and in fire. And he arrives. It's the guy. He goes into the water. He comes up. It's been hundreds of years. God speaks from the heavens. And people are like, yes, now is the time to do something about Rome, about Caesar, to throw off oppression, to throw off these other empires who do not worship the one true God. Remember, there's probably a lot of people here to witness this. And then the other half, the other half, of God's statement rings through and everyone can hear it. First, we hear about the Davidic son, the conquering Messiah, a picture of power, a picture of authority, a picture of victory. And then God says this, in whom I am well pleased. And he's quoting or alluding to Isaiah 42, a different place. We read it here. Many of you may know this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This comes from the servant songs in Isaiah, a description of the suffering servant. There's other places in Isaiah that tell us more about the suffering servant that we're even more familiar with. Like Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's heard that passage before? What I want us to see is what appear to be two competing pictures of the Messiah. One, the Jews expected. They hear Psalm 2 and they're like, yes, it's the time. The Messiah has come. He's going to get his sword. He's going to get his army. He's going to deal with injustice. He's going to throw off the oppressors. And then the second half of what God says evokes the idea of the suffering servant. We have the identity of Jesus, the Davidic son, God's Messiah, the appointed and anointed one. And then we have that Messiah's mission the suffering servant, the one who walks a different road than we might expect. And then in 4.1, we read then he was led up by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. And what's going to happen in this passage, in this 10 or 11 verses, is a description of Jesus, who is the Davidic son, fulfilling the ministry and the calling of the suffering servant. 
What Satan is doing here is saying to Jesus, presume on being the Davidic son. Don't walk the path of the sufferer. And Jesus says, no, I know what mission that I'm called to. I know what I'm called to do. So he's been fasting for 40 days. He's been fasting for 40 days. When I fast one day, there's weeping and whatever gnashing of teeth is. If I fast four days, I've got visions of mustard dogs just running around. 40 days. From what I can tell from research, it takes about 41 to 42 days for your body to have irreversible damage from not having food. Jesus is now on the cusp of irreversible damage. And I don't think it's a supernatural fasting. I think some people read this and they think, well, he's obviously the son of God. So he's just sort of pushed back the hunger pains miraculously. I don't think that's what happened. I think Jesus is doing a natural fast here. He is actually suffering. And then at the highest point of his suffering, 40 days have gone by. Jesus is very hungry. Satan approaches him and he says this in his first test. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If this were a passage about how we would defend against temptation, I think this is a confusing place to start. I've never called Pastor Mike in the middle of the night in the throes of temptation, just about to sin. Like, oh, Mike, I need help. I'm tempted. I'm about to sin. And he's like, Andrew, what's going on? I'm like, I just really want to turn some rocks into bread. Be like, what? What? That's not been a temptation that I struggle with. I think instead we're looking at a testing. Satan says to him, if you're the Davidic son, if you're the one with all power and authority, if you're the one who's going to be the victor, if you're the one who's going to stand on God's throne, do it now. Why are you hungering? Why are you suffering? Certainly, you can't be called to suffer. Just take these stones and turn them into bread. And Jesus responds by quoting from the Bible in Deuteronomy. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But he's quoting from a passage that has significance for him and significance for Israel. We can see this in Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. He's quoting from a significant place. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. What's happening in Deuteronomy is Moses is with the Israelites at the end of their time in the wilderness. We know the story of the Israelites. They're slaves in Egypt. Their burden is heavy. Their load is great. They cry out to God and God delivers them with miraculous signs, 10 plagues. He parts the waters and they walk through. He brings them out and says, I'm going to take you to the promised land. He's present with them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And when they're out away from Egypt, they say, we just want to go back. We don't have food here. We don't have water here. It's not great. Does the Lord care about us? Will he provide for us? Jesus is reliving out the life of Israel. Israel passes through the waters and spends 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism and spends 40 days in the wilderness. 
And when Israel said no to God, Jesus said yes. Not temptation. Not almost about to sin. Testing and victory. Devil approaches him again. He says this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In this case, Satan takes Jesus to a portion of the temple. The Bible's not super specific, but it's likely a portion of the temple that is edged up against the Kidron Valley. So as you looked down the temple, you'd be looking down about 500 feet. And he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, if you're the Davidic son, if you have all authority, if you have all power, if you're meant for victory, if you're meant for a throne, then you should just throw yourself off this temple because surely God would not let you strike the ground. People would be amazed. They'd immediately know who you were. And Jesus responds again. So the Satan, Satan, he uses scripture out of context. Just a quick note. Scripture out of context is a bad thing. You guys with me on that? Jesus responds again from Deuteronomy. He says this. Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Same word, by the way, as what Satan is doing to Jesus. Jesus is referring again to the Israelites out in the wilderness. They were thirsty, they had no water, they were complaining, they were testing God. So God tells Moses to take a staff and hit the rock and water would proceed from the rock so that people could drink. And the place was called Massah because it was a place where Israelite tested God. They didn't believe God would provide for them. They were not obedient to God, they were grumbling, they were complaining, they were not content to walk the path that God had laid out for them. They said no to God. Jesus says yes and continues to walk the obedient path of the sufferer. Two tests. Third test. We read it here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So far, the devil's been clever, and he's kind of been veiling his attempts to sort of undermine Jesus with Scripture and with if you are the Son of God, and this time it's all laid bare. No subtlety, no Scripture quotation, just simply this. Take it. Take it. Take the authority. Take the power. I'll give it to you now. Just worship me. Just do this. You're meant for a throne. You're meant for a kingdom. You're meant for power. You're meant for victory. You're meant for conquest. Just take it. Just take it now. How does Jesus respond? No. He says this. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. For the third time, Jesus responds to the devil by quoting from Moses' sermon to those who had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He responds again using scripture. Israel had had a history. We have a history of turning away from the one true God to all kinds of idols and foreign gods. Over and over again, Israel is unfaithful to the Lord. They do not worship him alone. They go somewhere else. 
even the heroes, even the heroes of the Old Testament. We remember the story of Solomon, this wise king where people would come from the other nations to hear his wisdom. He built the first temple. He was a good king. But somewhere along the way, he goes after other gods and his life ends in a ruin of idolatry. Over and over again, Israel had said no and they had gone after other gods. They had chosen not the path that God called them to. Instead, they chose an expedient, different, disobedient path. And Jesus is obedient. He says yes to God. And for the third time now, he walks away victorious where Israel had failed. Matthew's doing this deliberately. He's intentionally describing to us Jesus as the true Israelite. Jesus as the true kinsman of Israel. Jesus as the one who walks the path the Israelites were called to faithfully when they had walked it in unfaithfulness. Here's the thing, though. We have to see it more broadly than this. Jesus is not only the true Israelite. He is not only the faithful Israelite. He's the truest of humans. He's the righteous human. He's the obedient human. He walks the path that no human being could have or ever did walk. We can think of another temptation, another moment in salvation history, a crucial moment. God creates everything. And it's good. Creation's ready to go. Then he creates Adam in his own image and Eve after Adam and he places them in the garden and he tells them to take dominion, to subdue creation, to be his vice regents, his representatives to everything else. And Adam and Eve, they do not succeed in their calling when tested. Back then the devil came, told them similar lies tested them in a similar way. And Adam and Eve failed. They did not walk away victorious. So Jesus is not just true Israel. He's not just righteous Israel. He is righteous as a human being. He is the true human. Satan says to Jesus, just take it now. You're meant for victory. You're meant for a throne. But Jesus remembers he's not only the Davidic son, Jesus is also the suffering servant. His response is simply this, I was not called first to a crown of glory, I was called first to a crown of thorns. Not to be raised up first on a throne, but first on a cross. Not to bring a sword, but to receive nails. Jesus righteously and obediently walks the path of the suffering servant all the way to the cross. And Satan got in the path. And here's how Jesus responds finally at the end in verse 10. He says simply to Satan, be gone, Satan. He says to Satan, get out of my way. Get out of my way. This is about Jesus' calling to the cross. Satan has attempted to lure Jesus away from his mission, from his calling. And Jesus had said, no, I'm not going to do that. I know the mission to which God has called me, a mission that doesn't end in a throne. It ends in a cross. It's not a road that tramples over the Roman Empire, but goes under it all the way to a grave. Satan, get out of my way. And he walks out of the wilderness, the victor. Not crippled, not weakened by Satan's attacks, but the one who won who defeated Satan, 
But we can think of another time, actually, in Scripture, where Jesus says something very, very, very similar. In Matthew, in Matthew 16, Jesus is with his disciples there at Caesarea Philippi. It's the moment where Jesus' ministry is beginning to zero in on the cross. He's approaching Jerusalem, the city of his death. He knows where he's going. He asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they offer different answers. And then he says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I know. The most excited of all the disciples. Always has the answer. Peter was probably fun to be in class with. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, correct, you're correct. Now let me tell you what I am called to do. Peter says, you're the Davidic son. And Jesus is like, that's right, but there's more. I'm called to go to Jerusalem. I'm called to die. And Peter says, uh, no, that's not right. Do you forget that Caesar is claiming the land that we stand on? That Caesar claims to be a god? Did you forget that we've been oppressed for hundreds of years? Did you forget that we pay taxes to Caesar? Did you forget all those things? No, Jesus, you're the Davidic son. Remember Psalm 2. You're going to show up. You're going to gather the people. You're going to throw off the oppressor. Jesus says to Peter the same thing he said to Satan. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. When we look at the temptation, when we look at the wilderness wanderings, when we see Jesus encounter Satan in the wilderness, what we see is a picture of our victor. We see a picture of our Savior who defeated Satan, who directed himself towards the mission to what God had called him. Not first to a throne, but first to a cross. We have to see this when we read this passage. We have to see Israel failed. We have to see that Adam and Eve failed. We have to see that every single individual sitting in this room has failed. But Jesus did not. Jesus did not. He lived a humble life that ended in a humiliating death so that we might have life. Amen? That's what Jesus was called to. That's what the temptation is about. Secondly then, we don't only behold the mission of the Son. We follow the example of the Son. We follow the example of the Son. I don't have specific strategies for you. That's for another time. What I do have is the model. What I do have is the cross-shaped, the cruciform life and ministry of Jesus that I believe we should be continually pointing to and beholding and looking at so that we might live like our Lord. Right after Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, he says this to his disciples. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will for my sake, will have it. What are we to do here? We behold Jesus in the manger, the man born king, who Herod was afraid of. We behold Jesus at the baptism, whom God confirmed and declared. We behold Jesus in the wilderness, who righteously walked in our place and defeated Satan. We behold Jesus, who healed the sick, who exercised demons, who fed the hungry. We behold Jesus, who walked to Jerusalem, a painful, excruciating path. We behold Jesus, who was raised on a cross, Jesus, who was buried in a tomb. Jesus, who was raised by God. And then we behold our own cross, and we pick that cross up, and we follow after the king who has gone before us. 
it is difficult to hold the objects of sin when you are already holding a cross. Amen? So we jump back to the wilderness. And what we see here is a picture of victory, of our Lord committed to us, committed to his mission, committed to the cross. And then we make the same commitment. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for the blessings of your word, the riches that we find inside. We thank you that you sent your son when we all failed. We thank you that he bore our iniquities. He bore our sin. That he went to the cross and died our death so that we might live. I pray as a body of believers that we seek wholeheartedly and committedly to following the example of Jesus, the cruciform, the cross-shaped life, that we rest in the victory of our Lord. Pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.